0: Support for today's episode of Truth and Justice comes from ABC Network's new weekly drama series, Conviction. Each year in America, thousands of people are wrongfully convicted. That's why the Conviction Integrity Unit was assembled. Follow the investigations of this elite team who have only five days to determine if the seemingly innocent should be set free. Inspired by real events from the executive producer of Criminal Minds, Conviction stars Haley Atwell. And it premiered on October 3rd and airs on Monday nights at 10:9 central on ABC. Hey everybody, before we start today's show, I wanted to mention to you that you're going to notice a significant difference in today's episode. As you all know, we've used Johnny Rose's music for the last 18 months or so. Well, this week we had some licensing issues come up with his publisher, so I won't be using Johnny's music until we get that worked out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And before I get started with today's content, I wanted to make sure I shared some exciting news with you guys. I think I mentioned this in a bonus episode, but the guys at Merch Labs, those are the people that create all of our apparel, have created some new designs that are now available at the truthandjusticeapparel.com website. They've redesigned the Free at 8 shirts. They're now using the hashtag Free at 8s. They've also created a new shirt for Kenny Snow. It says Free the Blizzard, and it's got a big smiley face with a gold tooth on it. And they also redesigned the Aquitas Veritas shirt. Rather than just those words straight across the back, they're kind of arced around a phoenix. All the designs are really cool, so if you're interested in buying any apparel, go to truthandjusticeapparel.com or go to our homepage, truthandjusticepod.com, and click the shop link. Now, as you all know, this case just becomes more and more baffling. Every time we get closer to thinking we haven't figured out, something throws a monkey wrench into things. As I was working on the investigation last week, I started to think, what other tools do we have in our toolbox to try and figure this thing out and get to the truth? Immediately, Jim Clemente came to mind. We've never had an official, professional profile worked up for the crime scene of the murder of Elnora Griffin. Well, the problem with Jim Clemente, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, is... Jim listens to this podcast on a regular basis. So Jim knows everything that we've already done as far as the investigation goes. He knows too much about the suspects. He knows too much about the case. He knows too much about everything. So because of that knowledge, Jim really can't work up an accurate profile for us. However, Jim's counterpart on the Real Crime Profile podcast, which, by the way, if you guys aren't listening to Real Crime Profile, you need to go check it out, Because Jim's partner, and you also heard her on this show, Laura Richards, is also a profiler. As you guys know, Laura Richards was formerly with Scotland Yard. And not only is she a behavior analyst, but she also specializes in stalking behaviors. So last week, I reached out to Laura and asked her if she would be willing to generate a profile for this case for us. And thankfully, Laura was gracious enough to offer her services to us. She said that she'll need a couple of weeks to get it done. She's got a very busy schedule, and it's a lot to go through. But Laura now has a background, the victimology. She has all the crime scene photos, the autopsy, the autopsy report. She knows little to nothing about any of the suspects and absolutely nothing about the investigation. And she is currently in the process of working up an unbiased profile of this crime scene. We're shooting for a recording date towards the end of the month, which would mean that you'll probably hear it the first week of November. Now, that's not set in stone yet, but that's the plan. And now to move on to the content of today's episode, last week's interview with Ed's mom, Margie, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting interviews that's ever been on this show. And judging by the social media and email responses, most of you agreed with that. Overwhelmingly, the majority of you loved Margie. There are also a few people that caught some things in the interview that seems to lay suspicion on Margie. So what I want to do for the first segment of today's episode is follow up on a few things and give some analysis of the interview with Margie Jackson. If you were listening closely, the interview with Margie Jackson revealed a lot of things. But there's also a lot that you don't know about Margie. Margie is a tough woman. She's an unapologetic woman. She's a straight shooter, and she just tells it like it is. But I think that there was one moment where Margie really revealed some of her inner struggle. It was the moment in the interview where she kind of laughed and said, I know you think I'm crazy, but I'm not. You said, this fool is crazy, but I'm not. (laughs) I am a protector of myself. And the fact of the matter is, I don't think Margie Jackson was crazy. I think that a combination of both pride and the early onset of Alzheimer's warped some of the things that she was telling us during that interview. Now, I don't know exactly if Margie has been diagnosed with this, and I'm really uncomfortable talking about it, but I think that for perspective, you all need to know this. Both Ed and Kelvin have told me that their mother is suffering from Alzheimer's. She has some severe memory problems. And I know this may sound amusing, but really it's no laughing matter because it is a serious condition. Almost every time that I talk to Margie on the phone, I get another phone call from her a few minutes later. And then another phone call after that. And then another phone call after that. Many times during the last several months, Margie would call me and want to talk to me. We would talk for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour sometimes. We'd end the conversation and five minutes later my phone would ring and Margie, first of all, would refer to me as Mr. Turner rather than Mr. Ruff and she would greet me as though we hadn't just spoken. I'd answer the phone again thinking maybe Margie forgot to tell me something and she'd say the same thing she did the first time she called. Hi, Mr. Turner, this is Margie Jackson. I just wanted to call and check in with you. I would have a conversation with her again, we'd hang up, and she would call back the same thing. Hi, Mr. Turner, this is Margie Jackson. I just wanted to call and chat with you and check in with you. And like I said, I'm uncomfortable sharing that information, but there were several people that were concerned about the fact that Margie, say, didn't report to the police that Francis Johnson burned that knife in the pillow, things like that. But the fact is that I'm not sure if those things actually happened and if they did when they happened. Margie's told me that story several times, and every time it changes slightly. Sometimes it was years later, sometimes it was months later, sometimes it was at her house, at her mother's house. She can't remember exactly when it happened. And it's also important to note that Margie never suspected Frances. When I first started talking to her, she didn't even consider the fact that Francis Johnson was the murderer. She always suspected Johnny. As you heard on that interview, she says that Johnny was left-handed. I was the one that explained to Margie that we know Johnny Pryor was at work during the murder. There's just no way she could have done it. I've spoken with Margie dozens of times over the last several months and never really considered her to be a suspect, so I shared pretty much everything about the case and how the investigation was going. I believe that what has happened with Margie is she has heard me explain things to her about the case and the fact that Frances Johnson is a suspect. And she has warped those things in her mind to being her own memories. Now, I don't doubt the story of the knife being burned in the fire in the pillow. And I say that because Kim, Ed's wife, told me that Margie told her the same story a long time ago. But at the time, Margie wasn't connecting that incident with the murder. You heard Margie say she wanted to get that knife out of the fire. But it wasn't because she thought it was the murder weapon. It was because she thought it was a nice fishing knife. Now, after talking to me, Margie believes that Francis Johnson is the one who killed Elnora Griffin. And all these things have taken on different meaning for her. She did originally tell me that Francis had told her that he had been over there that night. She said that Francis told her that they got into a fight, she lied to him about some money, and he beat her up and he left. It was a little hard to understand in our conversation when she was talking about Francis going back in and killing her. But if you listen closely, she said, this is my theory. And then she went into saying some things as though they were fact. But those were just her thoughts. That was her theory. And it's a new theory. Because for the last 20 years, she thought that Johnny Pryor might have killed Elnora. And if you read the transcripts of her interview with Detective Huckle, which I'll have up on the website, you'll see that she suspected Johnny right from the beginning. She was telling Huckel right from the beginning that she believes that Johnny should have and could have seen that car when she got home, and she doesn't believe that she didn't know something was wrong with Elnora until the evening. I think that a lot of what Margie was telling us about Frances Johnson is a side effect of her Alzheimer's taking things she's heard and converting them into her own memories. Because I have seen those memories change over the last several months. Alzheimer's, if that is truly what she has, can be like confirmation bias on steroids. But let's also talk about all the people that Margie has shot over the years. A lot of people thought this was funny, and the way she presented it and my reactions to it certainly were amusing. But a lot of other people thought that it's crazy that she was able to shoot all these people and get away with it. But you have to listen closely and read between the lines. And also there's some information that Margie and Ed and Kelvin have shared with me that Margie chose not to share with us on the show. And that's the fact that Margie has been an abused woman her entire life. We all heard about the relationship that Margie had with her dad growing up and the beatings that she took from him. She kind of joked about it, but that was Margie's start of her relationship with men. She also downplayed a little bit the abuse that she took from her first husband, the first one that she shot. She said that she went to the hospital and she was bumped up and bruised up quite a bit. But the fact of the matter is, from what everyone else has told me, Margie has all false teeth right now. Because that husband literally kicked all the teeth out of her mouth. He broke her jaw, bashed her face in so much her eyes were swelled shut, and kicked her in the mouth so hard he knocked all of her teeth out. So this wasn't a woman who was trigger happy. It was a woman who took abuse growing up. And it was a woman that took daily abuse from this husband until it got so bad that she thought he was going to kill her. And that was the first time that she took a gun out and fought back. I don't know the extent of the abuse that she took from her other husbands or even exactly what happened with her and Kelvin. But Kelvin did tell me that he got physical with her. He got in her face, shoved her, and she shot him. So maybe these other incidents were not situations where you would think it would warrant someone shooting someone, but you have to consider the mentality of Margie Jackson and what she's been through. She's been through putting up with violence and abuse. Putting up with it for so long that it almost cost her her life before she finally started to fight back. Margie is a straight shooter. There's no shame in her game. She tells the truth. She says that she is never going to be abused by a man again, and it's quite obvious that she means it. You'll also notice that Margie has never went to jail for any of these incidents, and the reason for that is because they were all in self-defense. And I'm sure a lot of it has to do with Smith County Injustice, too. Nobody's really concerned about a black man getting shot in Smith County. But when everything is said and done, there's some consistency in Margie. Every incident of violence in her life has been with a man, never a woman, at least not that I'm aware of. She's not ashamed of shooting those men. And in fact, I think she's proud of it. She doesn't deny any of the wrongdoings in her life. She admits that she was a crack addict. She's proud of the fact that she got clean when her daughter got older. She admits to shooting all of those people. But she denies killing Elnora Griffin. And I'm going to be straight up honest with you. I believe her. Think about her M.O. Every incident of violence that we know about involves her shooting a man who was getting physical with her. The motive for every one of those was defending herself against violence. And her method of doing so, on every occasion, was with a gun. You heard her say on a couple of occasions, I'm not a fighter. I'm not letting someone get close enough to me that they might get the upper hand on me. That's why I use a gun. I find it incredibly hard to believe that a woman who for the last 40 years has carried a gun around with her in her purse and used it any time she needed to, without hesitation, would for some reason physically beat and use a knife to kill Elnora Griffin. It does not make sense with her personality or her history of behavior. And for me, everything comes back to the first conversation that I ever had with Margie. I called her this spring, and I told her who I was and what I was doing. I told her that I'd been investigating the case and that I believe that Ed is innocent. Her immediate, raw reaction was that she screamed. She cried, bawled even. When I told her that I was investigating this case and that I believe that Ed is innocent, she just started screaming, I knew my baby was innocent. I knew my baby was innocent. She went on through her tears telling me that he wouldn't even hurt a fly, that he would catch it and take it outside and let it go. She was praising God and exclaiming over and over again that she knew her baby was innocent. I wish that I could have caught that conversation on tape, but I was driving when she called me back. But all I can tell you is that her reaction to that was so raw and so real and so emotionally charged that it actually brought me to tears. This was not the raw reaction of a murderer who just found out that her crime is being reinvestigated. This was the reaction of a mother who knew that her son could never have committed such a horrible crime. And for the first time in nearly 20 years, she finally felt hope. Moving on from Margie, I feel that the next suspect that we need to look into is Leonard Mosley's girlfriend, Angela Walker. To be honest, I never really thought much about Angela. That is, until I connected with her on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. I contacted her as a follow-up to Leonard Mosley's interview. I was just looking for a little background information on Mosley. But she immediately took things in a completely different direction. I sent Angela a friend request, and she accepted it. And then I sent her a Facebook message letting her know that I was a journalist and that I was working on this story. I let her know that I think Edward Aits may be innocent, and I was wondering if she was willing to talk to me about it. Her immediate response was, no, he is not innocent, and his mother should have went to jail as well. I asked her if she was sure, and she said 100%. I asked her why she thought Margie was involved. She said, all I will say is the night before she was murdered, someone tried to break in on me. My dogs were poisoned, and that guy's mother called me, threatening my life. I told them all this, and they didn't believe me. I asked her if there was a police report for this incident, and I have filed an open records request to find out for sure if there was or not. But she responded by saying, well, they thought that I made it all up, but I didn't. I asked her why she thought Margie Jackson would threaten her and poison her dogs. She said, I will say this, I had what she wanted. I asked her if she was talking about Leonard, and these were her exact words. Leonard and I were in a relationship. He did what most men do he stepped out and got a side chick, which was Elnora. He broke it off with her, then she called me and told me that it was over. So he stopped seeing her, and it wasn't a week good when they stopped. But that same week, that's when Marge called me, threatening me, saying things like, I was the stupid bitch, and that he never left the other bitch alone. So that next night, for some strange reason, a big gust of wind came as though it was going to rain very hard, but it didn't, so my dogs, one got loose, and started barking crazy. And when I looked down the hill, someone was there, so I ran and locked myself in the bedroom. I called the police. It took them forever to come. So the day after that night, we saw that the dogs were poisoned. Someone poured antifreeze in their water. So I know that was a little bit scattered, and I was trying to correct some grammar along the way. But to summarize, she's saying that she was with Leonard. He was cheating on her with Elnora. She refers to Elnora as the side chick. She says that Leonard eventually broke it off with Elnora, and Elnora called her to tell her that, and I would assume that based on the trial transcript that this is when Angela moved back into Leonard's house. Now, as far as the call to her from Elnora, this could be that call that we see in the call log. Remember, on Monday night before the murder at 1120, Elnora called Leonard's house, but we know that Leonard would still be at work at 1120. So I'm wondering if that wasn't the call to Angela that Angela's talking about here. But then Angela says that that same week, she says the night before the murder, that Margie called her. And you remember from last week's interview that I asked Margie about this. And every time I've asked Margie about Angela, even months back, she has no idea who Angela is. She remembers some of Leonard's girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, wives, but she has no idea who Angela is. And I don't see it in Margie's personality for her to be someone who would butt into someone else's business like this. But Angela says that Margie called her, came to her house, poisoned her dog, and told her that she was a stupid bitch because, and note here that Angela refers to Elnora as that other bitch that he was still seeing. I don't know if she was quoting Margie's words there or if those are her words, but it certainly caught my attention. Our conversation continued on. We talked a little bit more about the case, and she told me that she thinks that Ed is protecting his mother. This message she sent says, he's protecting his mother. He, I don't think he was alone. I think 100% she did it along with her son. She goes on to say, We always said it was her. She threatened me. I told them that lady followed me to Beals, B-E-A-L-L-S. I'm not sure what that means. She goes on to say, The cops looked at me like I was a nut having a bad night dream. They tried to say I could have been a jealous lover. I wasn't the jealous lover. Marge was. Then as the conversation goes on, she says, that guy, her son, had been working for El Nora. I always thought why, why would he, and then she says they said at the time of the trial that the victim had fingernail markings on her body. Then she asked me if I had read that in the report. Now, the conversation that night went on a little further, but at this point, she asked me to keep it off the record, so I have to respect that. But by the end of this conversation, which was late at night, I asked her if we could talk on the phone the next day. She was willing to do that. She said that she wasn't sure exactly when because she had to work a 16-hour shift the next day, but she was willing to talk to me. We ended our conversation that night pleasantly. So right away, I had a few concerns after this conversation. Just like Mosley, she was determined to put the blame on Margie right away, right from the beginning of the conversation. With both of them, literally as soon as I started the conversation, they both said immediately that they thought Margie did it. It just seems odd to me that both of them could be so convinced that it was someone else. I mean, in reality, they should really know nothing about what happened. They weren't there, and Mosley had only been questioned by the police once, I believe, and Angela only once as well. Why would they be so sure that it was Margie? That just doesn't make sense to me, and it does raise some red flags. And then I thought about the trial. Remember at the trial that right after Leonard Mosley testified, the defense was going to call Angela Walker in to impeach his testimony about the time he arrived home on the night of the murder. But David Dobbs called a bench conference because he said that Angela Walker told him that on the night of the murder, she had driven past the house and saw Ed crouching down behind Elnora's car. Now, we know for several reasons that that's not true. Number one, by that time of night, it would have been dark. Secondly, Elnora's trailer is way too far off the road, and there's a tree in the way. Also, she never mentioned any of this to the police back in 1993. Even Dobbs didn't believe it. Dobbs said that he wanted to hook her up to a polygraph to see if this information was true before they put her on the stand to testify to that effect. And I don't know whatever actually happened with it because once she got on the stand, she didn't say anything about this during her actual testimony. But it makes me wonder why, after Leonard Mosley was on the stand and the defense was grilling him about his whereabouts that night, Does Angela then, all of a sudden, out of the blue, five years after the fact, come up with this crazy story? And then I couple that with her and Leonard Mosley's insistence on blaming this on Margie. It's concerning, to say the least. So as I said, the conversation with her that night went well. It was pleasant, and she actually opened up to me quite a bit. But the next morning, I messaged her again. At that point, I was still analyzing Mosley's interview, and I was trying to figure out if Mosley did indeed know the cause of death. So I asked Angela if she actually knows the cause of death in the murder. She messaged back, it's in the police report. I messaged back that I know it's in the police report. I just wanted to know if the two of them actually knew what happened. She responded with, everything is in the report. I explained to her that I wasn't trying to trick her or trap her, and I didn't think she was a suspect. I was just trying to figure out who the police told what to. So I just wanted to know if she knew what the actual cause of death was. She messaged back, it's in the court records. I then asked her if she has a copy of the court records, and at that point, she ended the conversation, deleted me from Facebook so I couldn't message her anymore, and that was the last I've heard from her. Now, this part of the conversation gave me some great concerns. For context's sake, I had this conversation with her before I aired the Leonard Mosley interview, meaning there's no way at this point that she could have known that I had some concerns about whether Leonard Mosley knew or did not know the cause of death. I hadn't said anything about it on the show yet, and even if she talked to Leonard, I hadn't said anything to Leonard about having any concerns with it. But for some reason, she went from the night before being very friendly and open to talking to me, and as soon as I asked her about the cause of death, she immediately shut down. She told me it was in the police report, everything's in the report, it's in the court records, and then she deleted me and ended the conversation. So I've had to ask myself, what would cause her to go from being friendly and willing to talk to me to cutting me off and ending the conversation just because I asked her if she knew the cause of death. It kind of makes me wonder if she did talk to Leonard that night. And it also makes me wonder a little bit more about Leonard insisting that she was choked to death. Now, I'll tell you up front that this is 100% speculation. This is just my thoughts. But it's got me wondering if Leonard wasn't really intentionally telling me that she was choked to death with the intention of throwing suspicion off of himself. And if he had told Angela to do the same thing, but she didn't know exactly what to say or how to say it, so she just ended the conversation. Like I said, that's just speculation, but that's kind of my thought process. It just seemed like a very, very odd response for her to shut down when I simply asked her what the cause of death was. After having that conversation, I did some background checking on Angela. And to be honest, it didn't reveal a whole lot. It doesn't look like she has any significant criminal history, but it looks like she may have had kind of a rough life. I found her listed under three or four different last names. She's moved around a lot. Looks like maybe some financial difficulties, but no real red flags. At this point, I have more questions about Angela than I have answers. All we really know is that she thought that she was Leonard's real girlfriend. She considered Elnora to be Leonard's, quote, side chick that drove them apart. She was determined to convince me that Margie and maybe Ed killed Elnora. She tried to create some BS story at trial that tried to further implicate Ed, and you heard in that conversation that she told me that the police report said that there were fingernail scratches on Elnora. The problem is, there were no fingernail scratches on Elnora's body. The report says nothing of the sort. And for some reason, Angela is bound and determined to blame this murderer on another woman. Now for the final segment of today's show, I want to fill you all in on what is the status of my open records request with Smith County. We've gone through all of the documentation that we have up until this point on the show. But there are still eight bankers boxes full of information that we haven't seen yet sitting at the Smith County District Attorney's Office. And that's the information that I've been trying to get since March of this year. Now you guys heard in the transparent episode that this has been a long and ridiculous process. I filed my original request with the Smith County Sheriff's Department. They told me that they had the files, and then they told me that they didn't, that the DA would have them. I then filed my request with the District Attorney's Office. They filed an appeal with the Attorney General. We had to wait 45 days for that. The Attorney General ruled for them to turn the documents over to me. They then filed a subsequent request with the Attorney General. I filed an objection to that request. And then just two weeks ago, we finally got a ruling back from the Office of the Attorney General on that subsequent request. In that ruling, the Attorney General responded once again, telling them to turn over the documents. In this time, the Office of the Attorney General has given them 10 days to comply. I waited about 10 days, and then I sent an email to Philip Smith with the District Attorney's Office, asking him what the plan was. And he responded to me with a cost estimate. So let me first go through what they are charging me for these records. They're charging me $7 for CDs, They're charging me 2,100 minutes for a total of $525 for labor for pulling the documents and scanning them in. They're charging me for 1,440 minutes for redacting protected information for a total of $360. They're charging me $177 for approximate overhead charges, and I'm not exactly sure what that is, $6.46 for certified mail, and $217.33 for conversion of audio, video, and photograph negatives into digital format. All of that comes to a grand total of $1,292.79. Now, does nearly $1,300 seem excessive to me? Yes, of course it does. Am I willing to pay it? Yes, I am. As a matter of fact, I put the check in the mail today, so we should be getting these documents, I would assume, within the next week or two. But this is my concern. Allison Clayton of the Innocence Project of Texas, Ed's attorney, had told me back in August that Matt Bingham had called her and told her that he had these eight boxes of information and invited her into his office to look at them. Back in August, she went to his office, she viewed the files, and at that point, Mr. Bingham told her that she was welcome to all of the information and that he would copy it all and give it to her free of charge. I hadn't really talked to Allison much about all of these requests since then, So I gave her a call and asked her what the status of her request was. Now, one question that a lot of people have asked me is, why am I going through all of this? If Allison is getting the files, I can just get them from her. But there are ethical issues there. Allison and I work together in the sense that we talk occasionally about what's going on with the investigation of the case, but we don't share files like that, and she has ethical rules as to why she can't do that. So I called Allison to ask her what was going on with her request, and she told me that in September she had returned to the DA's office where she thought she was going to be scanning these documents, and now instead of eight boxes, there were only four. Bingham wasn't there, some of his assistants were in the room, and they told her that the other four boxes had been removed because they were attorney work product or duplicates. Now, personally, I have an issue with them just removing those boxes from the room and not letting her see what they had taken out but that's a completely separate issue than this. The bigger issue was that she told me that a couple of days before this, she had gotten a bill from the Smith County DA's office. Her bill was not quite as large as mine. It was just over $900 as opposed to my nearly $1,300. But in any case, she had received an over $900 bill for material that she says Mr. Bingham had told her she could have for free. So I asked her if I could see the bill that she was sent, and I see that we're being charged for a lot of the same things. We were both charged $7 for the CDs, which makes sense, but then I was charged $525 for pulling documents and scanning, that's 2,100 minutes worth, and she was charged 1,500 minutes worth at a total of $375 for that same labor. And it's the same thing with the redaction. I was charged $360, 1,440 minutes worth, and she was charged $210, 840 minutes worth. Now, my issue isn't that her bill is less than mine. My issue is that it seems like we both got charged for the same thing. I mean, surely they didn't pull these documents, redact them, and scan them twice. Now, the rest of the bills were the same. We were both charged $117 for overhead. We were both charged $6.46 for certified mail. And we were both charged $217.33 for conversion of audio, video, and photograph negatives into digital format. Now, like I said, I'm perfectly willing to pay the bill. I think it's excessive, but I'm willing to pay it. But I obviously had some concerns with the DA's office charging us both for the same labor. So I sent Mr. Smith of the Smith County DA's office an email. I told him that before I sent the check, I wanted to make sure the charges were correct because Ms. Clayton of the Innocence Project also got a bill for the same labor. I wanted to make sure that there wasn't a clerical error and that they were accidentally double-dipping for the same layer and charging us both for the same thing. Mr. Smith responded to me, telling me that they are separate charges and my bill is correct. I sent him a follow-up email saying, Okay, I accept the charges, I'm going to pay it, but I would like an explanation as to these charges. I told him that surely they didn't spend 2,100 minutes pulling documents and scanning them for me and then spend another 1,500 minutes doing the exact same work again for Allison. I would imagine they would just copy the same CDs that they made for me. Especially considered that those documents were pulled and had been sitting in Mr. Bingham's office since August already. However, I did not get any further explanation from Mr. Smith. He just told me that my bill was more because I asked for more documents than she had asked for. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm paying my $1,200-plus bill, and hopefully we'll be getting the documents very soon. But my personal opinion is that this was another attempt to delay this open records request. I think that most people, when they get a bill like this and find out that someone else was charged for the same thing, their response would be to file another complaint with the Attorney General which would launch a whole other process for the Attorney General to investigate and make another ruling. But over these past several months, I've become very familiar with the way that Matt Bingham and his office operates. And it's amazing to me when I consider the fact that all I have been trying to do since March is to find the truth and make sure that justice is served in this case, not just for Edward Aids, but also for Elnora Griffin and her family. And the truth may very well be hiding inside of those documents. And it is shocking and disturbing to me that the Smith County District Attorney's Office is this afraid of the truth. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Executive producer is Michael Bussing. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn for transcribing the podcast, printing them out, and mailing them to both Ed and Kenny. Today's music selection was called To the Top by Score Squad. I want to thank today's sponsors, ABC's Conviction and Stamps.com for funding today's episode. And as always, I want to thank all of you for all of your continued support in every way that you give it. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com Send your new cases into cases at truthandjusticepod.com, like the Facebook page, or follow me on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.